From the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and MOG, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day. With support from Genetech. To another episode of Demystifying NMO and MOG, we were fortunate enough to sit down with award-winning physician, researcher, and educator, Dr. Aaron Boster. He's a board-certified neurologist and the founder of the Boster Center for Multiple Sclerosis in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Boster grew up watching his uncle struggle with MS, and this was at a time when the healthcare system was largely unprepared to deal with the complexities of the disease. And in our discussion, you see how those experiences have shaped his approach to being a physician. He and his team really focus on putting patients and their families first and work diligently to improve every dimension of a patient's well-being. Dr. Boster is also one of a growing number of clinicians harnessing the power of social media to extend their reach beyond their office hours and create 24-7 resources of reliable medical information. He spoke to us about the power of communication, education, and patient-physician relationships. We also dive into the importance of clinical trials, and he walks us through each phase of a trial and lets us know what someone can expect if they're involved. Hey, Dr. Boster, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to talk all things relating to science communication, health literacy, as it relates to understanding clinical trials for NMO and MOG patients. That's awesome. I'm excited to have the conversation, and thank you very much for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah. And we specifically wanted you to be our guest on this episode because not only are you an esteemed MS clinician, you have a lot of clinical trial experience yourself, but you're also a prolific YouTuber. You have a number um, of YouTube videos, lots of um, subscribers on anything and everything related to MS and neuroimmunology. You know, I I realized a long time ago um, that if, if, if I want to try to help you, it's really by request. You know, I'm not a surgeon. I don't like cut you or something. I, I basically ask you to do something. Like, for example, I may ask you to not smoke cigarettes as an example. And if I can't explain to you why I don't want you to smoke cigarettes, you're probably not going to understand and not do it. But if I'm successful in explaining to you why, then you do my job for me. And so I realized that the ability to communicate the why behind what we're asking families is really, really important. And I also realized that every single family that comes and sees me has a smartphone with some type of social media on it. And, you know, when you're sitting there talking to me, that might not be the right time for you. You know, you may not, that might not be a good time for you to take in what I'm putting down. So I figure if I can record a YouTube video, then like at three o'clock in the morning in your bathrobe, you could watch it in the privacy of your bathroom, because that's when it's a good time to receive it. Um, oh, I think those are such great points. I think the biggest thing that's, well, one of the biggest things that sticks out to me is I just personally joke all the time. Like if you can't explain it to me, if it doesn't make sense, like I'm not going to do it. And that's just me as one person. So I can't imagine, right. Why someone's just going to do something unless they don't under, they understand the reasoning. You know, in the, the, with, with neuroimmunology and with a, a condition like MOG or NMO, it's so critically important that you understand because we almost need a zero tolerance policy. You know, we don't, we're not seeing progression of disability in between attacks like we might in the setting of MS. And, and that's good, but it's also uh, a risk that you have a false sense of confidence that everything's okay because you're not having an attack. And, and, and this, this plays into the critical importance of making sure that families understand what's at stake. 
so that they can be really active participants in their care. Yeah. And I think like a, I mean, it's not even new anymore, but a big point within um, NMO, MOG patient, MS patient cares about shared clinical decision-making. We hear that all the time. Well, how are you supposed to have shared clinical decisions if patients are not adequately informed and what is adequately informed and what is conformed consent? And I think that having uh, these video clips or just like informal in layman's terms, easy to understand is super important so that patients can make the best decisions with their clinical care team. Amen. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, we, these conditions are lifelong and the treatment is lifelong. Um, and, and, and so we're asking someone to do something rather significant. Uh, and I think spending the time to make sure that we're all aligned is worth it. And I would submit to you that you actually can't spend too much time in that space having that conversation. So you are an N of one and there are others like you who have... Um very like interactive and robust social media platforms, whether on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, what have you. So there is definitely like a group of you who understand and appreciate this and are doing the work. What do you think the general um, MS, NMO, MOG, uh, like healthcare professionals, what do you think that like, what what can they do to improve their ability to communicate with patients and their families? So I, um, I, I lament that my field is still largely populated by very um, large, fragile egos um, and, and a, a stereotypical old man that doesn't need to listen to what you have to say. He knows all the answers. And I, I, I hope that we don't have to wait for all of those old fuddy-duddies to retire. I, I, don't, I don't want that to be the answer. Um, I... I try as I've educated fellows and nurse practitioners to convey the critical importance of, of, of you know, at least this style of treatment. Um, but, but to get to your question, because I don't wanna wait around um, for either of those two things to, to culminate. I, I think that we have to recognize uh, that the family that we're dealing with, this is the most impactful thing that's ever happened to them and not in a good way. And it may be the fourth patient of 20 you're gonna see that day, But for that family, it's arguably one of the single most important um, appointments of the year. And we need to keep that foremost in our mind. Um, You know, one of the the cool things for me as a human working with uh, families with NMO spectrum disorder and MOG is they're very invested and they're very very interested in learning. And so I, I as a person, I like that. and I guess if a doctor doesn't like that, they need to recognize that and, and, and then compensate in some fashion because it is complicated and, and it does merit spending some time. Now, what the patient can do is they can be verbal. They can be a self-advocate and say, excuse me, Mr. Man, I did not understand what you just said. Would you please say it again? Uh, you know, and I, and I want, I hope that somebody listening to this takes away the, the, the um, permission to be selfish, because it's your spinal cord. Like you only have one and it's yours and you don't get another. There's no secondary spinal cord. And so if the doctor doesn't, doesn't spend the time, it doesn't hurt the doctor, but it may hurt you. Um, and so I want people to feel selfish and say, no, 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 no. Actually, no, I'm not okay with that. You know, that's, I think that's important. I think that's so important. It is, after all, your body. You have a right to know what's going on inside it. Now, that being I think total to be your own advocate. I don't think that's selfish. That's just important. Um, 
So what can a patient do then if they are, right, they, they're doing the advocacy work, but they're not having good communication with their clinicians. So they do turn to the internet. They do go on social media. What are just some good uh, basic principles okay. to avoid the obvious misinformation? That's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And so, you know, if you can, if you have a spell check on your computer, you don't even need to be fluent in a language to write in that language anymore. I mean, you know, and, and, and you could be a 15 year old with a funny idea. And if you use proper syntax and grammar, it'll appear real when someone else reads it. And so this gets into that whole concept of health literacy. So one of the things I used to ask my patients to do when I first started in practice was not to look on the internet which turned out to be a stupid thing to say because everyone's going to look on the internet. I mean, if I learn a new word, I look it up on Google, right? So, so that's not a good answer. So, so, I mean, the reason I started a YouTube channel was so that I could point to a source that I believed in, but I think that there's other things that each individual can take away. So number one, you need to have someone that you can turn to and, and, and vet these things out. So I, I typically will tell families I work with, it takes about two years to get comfortable with all these words and these, these therapies. And it takes you about two years uh, to, to feel comfortable in your own skin. Now, not intellectually. Intellectually, that could happen faster, but I mean emotionally, right? And I tell people, if you go to church and mention that you were recently diagnosed with MOG, they'll say, oh my God. When I was at camp, when I was a kid, I met this girl down in Iowa and she had a best friend that lived on the other side of a river and the best friend had a bicycle and she was on the bicycle and she saw a dog that had NMO and that dog grew up and it exploded, right? And, and here's this person in church who thinks they're co connecting with you and all it does is terrify you. And then you don't know whether dogs on bicycles will make NMO explode, right? And that's terrifying. So you need to be able to go to your translator and say, hey, is it true that dogs with NMO explode? And the translator should be able to say, no, that's not true. No, and help you come to terms with the fact that, that ain't right, right? And the translator, I would like the translator to be your care team, right? In, in a perfect world, it would be the, the neuroimmunologist. She could do it or her staff could do it, her, her team members, the nurse practitioner, the nurse um, and it's interesting in Europe, most of the communication outside of the once a year, like clinic appointments is with the, with the clinic nurse. Um, and so I think we need to identify when I hear something weird, who do I talk to? And I would like that to be someone on your care team. Now that's aspirational. I'm not saying that every care team will do that, but they should. Um, so with that in mind, when patients even if they have a great clinical care team, but they're just up at 3 a.m. and they're you going do. down the rabbit hole, they stumble upon your YouTube channel. You now have what, like 40,000 subscribers? I don't even know how many video contents you have I, now. I have over, I crested 550 videos um, and I'm really excited. There's like 42,000 subscribers. Uh, so I joke that instead of having like friends, I, I make YouTube videos. <laughs> There's a bunch of them. And one of those friends, you already did a whole YouTube video on clinical trials um, yeah. and a high level overview. So maybe we'll be able to link that in our episode notes to pay to so that listeners can check that out. But I'd really want to get your input here on this episode on that. Um, For sure. You did cover a lot of this on your YouTube videos. So Obviously, now there are three FDA approved treatments for NMOSD. Yes, yes. This, that was awesome. 2019, 2020. So while 2020 was a shitty year by most other accounts, it 
except it better for, as, as it relates to treatment of a terrible condition. That, yeah. that part was good. Yeah. So if patients are adults with AQP4 positive antibodies, they have three FDA approved options. But that being said, there's obviously still unmet need, the modern community, pedi pediatric populations, um, yep. as well as to get to that FDA approval, all of those treatments went through rigorous uh, clinical development and clinical trials. So Correct. How would you explain what a clinical trial is like, and what is the goal? Yep, absolutely. And it's so important. Um, so, so the first thing that I like to remind um, folks is that if nobody volunteered for an NMO trial today, we would have zero therapies available for people with NMO. So the only reason that there are three FDA approved therapies for NMO are people who came before us with the condition they volunteered their bodies to answer a question so that we could treat our patients now. So the first thing that we must do is we must honor what they did. So let's be quiet for just a quick second on the podcast out of honor to that. Because right, I think that's a really, really big deal. So thank you to all of those people. So, so most people with NMO, MOG, most people with MS, it's, it's adequate just to treat the disease. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? So just treating the disease is not a just, I mean, that's glorious. But there are some people where just treating the disease is not enough. They want to stick it to the disease. And one of the most impactful ways to do that is to participate in a clinical trial. Now, clinical trials are, have are part of my life. I've been running uh, clinical trials in neuroimmunology since I was in my early 20s. And I'm not my early 20s anymore. I had hair when I started. You know, so, and, and really what you're doing in a clinical trial is you're, uh, and, I, and I'm going to talk mostly about like a therapeutic treatment trials, like a, like a trial that would lead to sartrelizumab getting approved or something like that, right? So what you're doing is, is some science group, some manufacturer, let's say, came up with a compound that seems like it should be amazing to treat NMO right? And they have a model of NMO and a laboratory, and it looks like this is good, right? But they haven't tried it in a human being yet. So they have to make this giant leap from the bench to the bedside. And we call that a phase one trial. Now, a phase one clinical trial, I joke, is where you give the drug to healthy, poor college kids and see if they explode. And, and what I mean by that is we're not testing the therapy in NMO patients yet. We're, we're, we're literally testing it in like healthy college kids. And what we're doing is we're looking at the dose finding and very specifically the, the safety concerns to make sure that it's a safe product. So, so when you're done with the phase one, you now have evidence, preclinical evidence that this should work in MOG or in NMO or MS, whatever it is that you're testing. And then you have phase one evidence that it won't make poor college kids explode. So it seems to be safe in humans. Then you move to phase two. Now in phase two, that is a proof of concept where you're actually going to test the drug in the patient population. So if you have an NMO drug, you're going to test it in NMO patients, but you're not going to try to prove to the satisfaction of the FDA, a clinical outcome, because that takes too long. It's too expensive. And so before you get to that point, you do a proof of concept. Now, in neuroimmunology, most of the proofs of concepts are using the MRI machine because the MRI can change sometimes faster than the, the clinical picture. 
And, and so you'll come up with some type of like phase two situation where you'll test the drug in the patient population of interest. And again, you're looking at dose finding and you're looking at safety, but now you can actually start to look at efficacy. Like, does the MRI look prettier or something like this? If that looks positive, then you plan a phase three trial. Now the phase three trial in the United States is what the FDA will use to decide yay or nay. And oftentimes when you're planning a phase three trial, you're actually planning it with the FDA. So you sit down with the FDA and you're like, okay, would, would this, if I show you this, would you buy it? No. Okay. What if I show you that? Yeah. Okay. And then you kind of, and what you're doing in a phase three trial is you're proving beyond any doubt that the effect, the beneficial effect is caused by the drug and not by some other factor. So, so if you imagine a trial where you have, you know, uh, a couple hundred people in one group and a couple hundred people in the other group, and they find out that group A did better. So this drug's better. So we know that in this population, this sample of people with NMO, that this drug seemed to be better. Then we ask the question, is my patient like that patient? So for example, in a lot of the NMO trials, they only took people that were NMO antibody positive. So, so then we say, okay, well, this drug has been shown to work in NMO antibody positive patients. And so we look for NMO. So, so when we test the drug, we're, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to demonstrate meaningful outcomes. So, you know, what's a meaningful outcome? Well, that's when you don't have a tax, right? So when it's boring. And so then we run the trial for a period of time. And at the end of the trial, we can do a comparison. And I want to spend a couple minutes, if you don't mind talking about how you set that up. No, definitely. I wanted to summarize. So phase one, just looking at safety, small group of people, healthy college kids don't want them to explode. Phase two, proof of concept. Does it work in whatever disease you're looking at? In this case, NMOS DMOG. Phase three, you get a bunch more people involved. You make sure that it's something that the drug is actually doing compared to the placebo or the comparator. And then if it's positive and the safety is tolerable, it gets FDA approval. And then you can do phase four, all these like special questions. Yeah. Post That's exactly right. Phase four is when the drug's approved, but there's still a question like, Hey, would this work in kids? Cause we didn't test it in kids. And then they'll do a phase four in kids or could it work as an add-on therapy? We didn't test it that way. So phase four, we may use it as an add-on, but I, I just want to spend a couple more minutes about the experience of the human during phase three. So during phase three, you'll go through a screening process where the clinicians will do ex physical examinations and they'll do MRIs and they'll do laboratories. Sometimes they require, you know, special labs, what have you. And they submit all of that to the sponsor. And then doctors working for the sponsor will say, okay, yeah, that patient meets all the criteria. So they would be qualified to participate in the trial. So the patient's consented and they enter the trial. And the next thing that happens after they've been screened in is they randomize. So when you randomize, you're going to be assigned a drug. And depending on the way the trial structured, it could be drug A versus drug B. In NMO, we did a lot of drug A versus placebo. Why? Because there's no approved, there were no approved therapies. So we, had, we couldn't compare it to something because there was nothing that was proven to compare it to. And so in the trial, you're receiving a therapy, but you don't know if it's real or not. And I, the doctor, don't know if it's real or not. That's called double blind. And it's actually triple blind because the MRI doesn't know what you're on. And so during the course of the trial, I'm managing your care as, as the primary investigator, the guy watching the trial. And if you, God forbid, have an attack, we're treating it. And if you have a symptom, we're managing it. And you're getting MRIs, but we're blind to how they're doing. 
And then at the end of the trial, they unblind. And that's a lot like Christmas where you get an envelope literally and you tear it open. Oh my gosh, this patient, they were on drug A or they were on drug B. And you can do some very powerful statistics and look at the entire group of A and how they did with attacks and the entire group of B. And then you can see if that difference was statistically significant. And, and that's really what we're doing in a trial. The, the effort to the patient and to the family is significant. People are coming in oftentimes more frequently. They're giving blood. Sometimes they have to do things like give spinal fluid. Um, but it's through their Herculean efforts that we have brought three enomotherapies approved. I mean, when I was in training, there was nothing, I mean, nothing at all. And, and the fact that we now have options is a godsend. It's a really, it's, it's very special. Yeah, I want to take the moment again to, you know, honor all of those patients, you're right, because they took great risk um, and really did it not just for themselves, but on behalf of the entire uh, patient community. Um, so now to have three FDA approved treatments. So thank you again to all those patients of which my brother was one, because without them, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have these available treatments. So if, how does a patient learn about clinical trials? I'm assuming you're going to say, ideally, it's through their clinical care team, but, but so, what are, well, how? So, so if a patient is desirous of participating in a trial, to me, that's like gold. I mean, the fact that they're interested, I'm terribly excited. And, and if somebody's listening to this and they're interested, I, I don't want to let that opportunity slip by. So let's come up with as many options as we can think of to try to help. So one, you're right. One place is to go to your clinician and ask about trials and they should have an answer. It's my opinion that if you're managing NMO and MOG, you should know where the trials are, right? Even if you're not running them, you need to be able to say, well, there's one over there. So that's the first thing. And honestly, sometimes it's going to fall flat, right? Like just to be honest, like sometimes they're not going to know. Now, another thing that you can do is you can lean on the societies like this one right? So if you reach out to, to one of the societies and say, hey, I'm an NMO patient, I want, they will very quickly serve you up all the trials that are available because they literally, you keep your fingers on the pulse of everything that's going on. And so that's a really good idea. Now, there's a website, um, which, which I look at a lot because I'm a clinical trials nerd, and it's www.clinicaltrials.gov. So it's uh, the FDA's website. And if you go, so I went there just before we logged on because I wanted to kind of see. And, and there are many, many NMO spectrum disorder and MOG trials that are currently enrolling. And so you can go to that website and type in NMO or MOG and hit enter, and it'll show you every single registered trial in the entire world. And it'll tell you where they're enrolling and if they're still enrolling or not. And there's actually a couple of trials that haven't even opened to enrollment yet. And Chelsea, when I was looking at this, there's words I wasn't familiar with. There are monoclonal antibodies that are in testing now I haven't even heard of. So that made that warmed my heart, you know. And so going to, you know, clinicaltrials.gov is another location. Um, you, you can do Google searches, you know, it, it, but now you're starting to kind of get a little bit esoteric. So I would, I would, your clinical care team, this organization right now that we're talking about, and then also looking at clinicaltrials.gov to me would be a great place to start. No, I think that's awesome. So that being said, as you said, you went on and you checked clinicaltrials.gov. There's all these new monoclonal antibodies that you can barely pronounce the name of, which is always the case with them. So what are the current ongoing clinical trials in NMOSD in MOG-AD to really satisfy those unmet needs? 
So, you know, when I look at the trials, I see two groups of trials. I see exciting monoclonals that are unfamiliar to me in full transparency. And, and that's, you know, so that's my homework tonight is I'm going to read up, right? And that's very, very exciting. And then also we see the extensions, the ongoing works for the currently approved drugs. And so, for example, can you use uh, sartrelizumab? Could you use eclizumab? Could you do that in a kid? Could that be in a, in a child? Because some, you know, I take care of people that have NMO that are under 21. And so I see investigations like that or extensions. And so those works, they may not be, quote, as sexy, but they're really, really important because you don't have MOG for two years and you don't only have MOG when you're 18 to 55, right? I mean, so, so starting to answer those other questions, which is what I saw when I looked at the, the, uh, the list of trials really made me feel kind of good. I, I, was, I was very, very encouraged. I totally agree with you. And I think when it comes to the diff, like the new exciting and be sexy ones of the names that we can't pronounce um, for treatment of NMOSD MOG, um, just high level there, like instead of uh, targeting one specific cell type, like a B cell or one specific cytokine or one inflammatory pathway, like complement, um, maybe potentially modifying an antibody and how it's destroyed. Maybe that's helpful for MOG patients. That's um, exciting. I mean, I we, we, you know, the, the more, the more angles that we can attack these conditions, the better, uh, you know, and if you look at fields that are 15, 20 years ahead of us and in MOG, maybe like 25 years ahead of us, the answer is almost always combinations of therapies. Mm -hmm. You're attacking it from different angles. And so the more mechanistic things that we develop, the better off we are as a community. That's really great stuff. I think that's a really great point. And so I would say for me, what I'm most excited about for the NMOSD MOG AD community is really being able to find an indication approved, or like getting an indication approved by the FDA for MOG AD specifically. So I'm watching those clinical trials closely. Um, and the combination of therapy, as you just mentioned, but what, what makes you most excited? So I, I think to be honest, the thing that's probably most exciting to me is, is a little bit more basic than that, but, but it's still the thing that's most exciting. It's that this is a common parlance conversation now, and it didn't used to be five years ago. So there were folks that managed MS that didn't do MOG or NMO, right? Or they didn't know about MOG or NMO. And now I don't think it's appropriate to have a neuroimmunologic conversation without considering these conditions. And so just the sheer fact that it's, it's on the tip of our tongues and it's the top of our minds um, is, is, is huge. And if I was to suggest like a revolutionary thingy, right, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be very highfalutin. I would like every neurologist on earth, or at least in the United States, but let's, I mean, ideally on earth, when you work up someone for MS, check them for NMO and MOG. So it's two antibodies, it's covered by insurance and you can check and, you know, you can check and to see if they have antibodies for MOG and NMO. That one, that one piece of effort would, would be revolutionary to our field because what will happen is there are some patients, they look and smell like MS and we're fooled and we put them on an MS therapy and, and they don't do very well because they don't have MS and the therapy is not very effective. But if we would simply get in the habit of checking these very simple things early on, I think it would be a, a, a giant step forward. I, I really do. And the fact that we're talking about this more makes me feel like we're closer to getting to that point. 
So I, I know that's not like a highfalutin answer, but that is in fact what has me the most excited. No, I completely agree with you. I think from a like a human life impact, if we just checked and we gave people the timely and accurate diagnosis and therefore the most accurate and available treatment, that's going to be a win-win for everybody. You know, and, and going back to self-advocacy, I think it would be glorious if a, if a very savvy patient said, okay, uh, doctor, I, I think that's great. Would you please also check me for MOG and NMO? That would be awesome. Like, I mean, and, and I think it's completely appropriate. The doctor better say yes. Yeah. And I think that's a big um, focus priority of the Samara Foundation is making sure that patients have greater advocacy, empowerment to be able to ask questions, have good relationships with their clinicians. Um, so that, again, so they can get the best, most accurate uh shared decisions with their clinical care team. Like that's it. That's the goal. And, and I hope that neurologists who are not comfortable say that, right? This is not, th these are not conditions to flirt around with. Nobody should do a little bit of MOG mm -hmm. or a little bit. That's not, that's, that's not what this is about. Um, and so um, I really think it's an opportunity to rise to the occasion, both on the clinician side and on the family side, as we collaborate to try to make this boring because success is to make it boring. That way the, the patient can have excitement in the bedroom and the boardroom and the playing field. I want them to be bored as heck when they're sitting in my infusion center or than sitting in my clinic. Like if we don't have things to talk about and I'm showing you pictures of my dog and my vacation, we're winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're winning. That's winning. Uh, well, cheers to that. Already we can be hopeful and like grounded in the data and actual clinical outcomes that that is what like it's getting more positive uh, year by year with NMOSD with MOG as we have not only these exciting like as you said preclinical or like you know eureka moments in the lab but also by like the sheer like willpower and bravery of patients their families clinicians to prove or to demonstrate efficacy of these treatments. So. Yep. Yeah, we, we've, come, we've come a long way. You know, when, when I was in training, and I'm not going to give the date because it'll make me feel really old, but what I was taught about NMO, you know, I was taught the first attack, you go blind in your left eye. The second attack, you go blind in your right eye. The third attack, you stop breathing. That's literally the way that we were taught. Wow, wow, and, wow. And, and, and that is so far from the truth now that it warms my heart to be able to share that because we've moved so far away from that, so far away. Um, you know, we, we now can, can demand quiet in a disease where we could really only pray. Um, and, and, and I think it's awesome. You know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak with you guys. This is a fantastic group of people and you're, you're really leading the charge in many, many respects in helping create a community, an inclusive community uh, for, for patients with NMO spectrum disorders and, and MOG. And, and so I want to say thank you to you guys for doing that. That's really awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for offering your insight and expertise. And remember, you can find him on YouTube, Dr. Aaron Boster. Take care, guys. God bless. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.